there are a few days in human history in which we would say, on that day, the entire world was affected. Some of us might think back to some of the days near the end of World War II. We might say the day that the Nazis surrendered the European theater of the war, or the days that the Japanese gave their unconditional surrender after dropping the atomic bombs. Yes, the world, the world at large changed. Some of us might look to empires of ancient history, the ones that were thousands of years ago in the Middle East and Asia and North Africa, and we might say, well, surely sometime in the midst of those wars, the world as we knew it changed. But even then, surely there were implications for the whole world, but to have the direct effect along the whole world was not known or felt. Of course, as Christians, we would point to the three days of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Those were the days that the entire world were affected, but the world would not yet know it for some time to come. But there was one day. There was one day when every person on earth was changed. It was a day when people came to realize that God was not to be taken lightly and his clear commandments not to be ignored. This was a day when sorrow and grief rained down from heaven as a consistent cleansing agent. A day when scoffing moved to concern and concern moved to fear and fear moved to cries for salvation. But those cries were not heard. God had already made up his mind. And judgment was falling upon creation. Of course, I'm talking about the day that we've been reading about. The day that it started raining and that God allowed the flood on the earth. We've entitled this series, Beyond Repair, and we've seen in this progression from Genesis 1 now through Genesis 9 on our way to Genesis 11 that there is this recurring theme. There is this degradation of creation. And the title of the series is posed in a question because we have to wonder, is this whole cosmic divine project beyond repair? And in some ways we see today, in some ways the answer is yes. God says it is beyond repair. And I'm going to flood the whole place and kill all the people. And in some ways, the answer is no. As he preserves a select few for himself and even preserves an aspect of his creation. This morning, we've been reading through Genesis 6 through 9. Four full chapters of the Bible, this account of the flood. And as we've been reading it, as we recall to memory those of us maybe who grew up in the church and who've heard this story before, what is the thing or what are the things that our mind immediately is drawn to as we think about this story of the flood? The ark <laughs> and the animals, right? I mean, we even call it, in summary, the story of Noah and the ark. We think about the fact that somehow Noah made this massive boat 
It was 510 feet long. It's believed to be one of, if not the largest wooden boat in the history of humankind. 510 feet long is approximately the length of 1.5 football fields. That's what it usually feels like when the Browns are on offense. And the height of that arc was the equivalent of about 50 feet from the ground, taller than most modern four-story houses. The ark had the storage capacity of 450 semi-trailers. For your frame of reference, a standard livestock trailer holds about 250 sheep. So if the ark only was carrying sheep, it would have been able to house 120,000 of them. When we read this story, our mind naturally goes to the boat. (laughs) Or our mind naturally goes to the animals. I mean, man, Noah must have been some kind of snake charmer, right? I mean, think about it. To get all those animals up two by two, up the ramp, into their given stalls. I mean, that that is crazy to think about. And what was happening on the inside of that ark? I mean, really, how did that all go down? Lions in one stall and their natural food source gazelles in the stall right down the way. I mean, or maybe they were on a different level. It said there was three levels. How was all of that arranged? These were the things that we think about. These are the things that we enjoy thinking about. I mean, this story is miraculous in nature. How do we answer some of these questions? We simply say that is a miracle of God. It couldn't be anything else but that. But don't let our musings about the mechanics of this story take us off track. Because when we simply focus on the ark or the animals in the story of the flood, the story of the flood itself becomes watered down. There are many important features of this story, four chapters of the Bible, but this morning I want to focus on just three, just three key moments in this story of the flood. Because in these three key moments, we see something about God. And we see some key implications for us. And so here's the first key moment we want to focus on. And that is the divine judgment of sin. Key moment number one is the divine judgment of sin. Far from a feel-good story about a big boat or animals and some creative corralling This was a story of terror and judgment. Sin and corruption reigned on the earth. In Genesis 6, look look with me in your Bible. Genesis 6, 11 to 13 contains a pronouncement of the judgment of God and the reason for it. This is what he says. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold... It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. A pronouncement of judgment. And to understand that dynamic more fully... How did we get to this place? We need to remind ourselves of just where we've come from. We saw very early on, I mean, we are only six to nine chapters in this huge, massive story of God, and already we've reached this place. How did we get here so quickly? 
We saw in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God, and as such, they not only questioned God's goodness, but they also questioned his godness. And this sin only became more profound in its consequences as they continued to procreate. Chapter 4. Why was chapter 4 of Genesis in the Bible? Well, it shows us that a half-hearted approach to God leads to a half-hearted approach to sin. But when you have a half-hearted approach to sin, you don't fully grasp just how devastating the effects of sin really are in your life. It's more destructive than we can possibly imagine. When we embrace sin, it sets us on this path of a downward spiral away from God. It's got the power to change us personally. It has the power to change our families. And it even has the power of changing an entire culture, which we saw in that chapter. The point of chapter 4 was just simply this. Sin is powerfully destructive. Chapter 5 showed us that the curse that God attached to sin was now enacted and that the consequences of sin was death. We saw this remarkable account of this lineage of Adam, early human history of these people that lived hundreds of years but all had one common thread, one common thing that they shared. Every single one of them died. Death reigned in God's creation. They all died except for one man who sets up the contrast. Enoch was spared and serves as an example of righteousness in his time. But the point of chapter 5 was that sin leads to death. When you saw at the beginning of chapter 6, now we're right on the front end of the flood and we see that both the spiritual realm and the physical realm were in complete and utter rebellion against God, so much so that every intention of the thoughts of the heart of men were only evil, it says. But Noah, Noah found favor in God's sight. So we see this lead up to the flood as this ongoing degradation of society in which sin is taking over. It's powerful in its effect. And that's really why we chose to preach on Genesis chapter 1 through 11 in this life, this season of our church. Not because we love talking about sin, but because it is so important. It's foundational to our understanding of ourselves and of God. When you don't understand just how powerful sin is in your life, you don't have motivation to shed it. You don't have motivation to go to a savior to take care of it. You don't have a desire for the holy, just, loving, righteous God who offers infinitely more than these sinful temptations that we have in our lives. We live in a day right now when we've lost a sense of the profound nature of sin. We don't often grieve the effects that it has on our life. We dabble. We play, we excuse, and in the midst we go deeper and deeper. And God exercises patience. God shows repeated opportunities for us to turn back to him. And God makes his desires known again and again and again. 
But what is his ultimate response to sin? Judgment. Did you know that unless you are forgiven, sin leads to judgment? And that is why Genesis 6 through 9 is positioned so early in the Bible for people to understand that most severe reality. Think about the logical nature of this with me. Judgment is the appropriate and logical response of a holy God to a sinful people. Because justice is one of God's attributes. And because it's one of his attributes, there needs to be a standard by which that justice is examined or compared. The standard is the holiness of God himself. And if justice is one of God's attributes, there needs to be an application of justice. And what is the application of justice? For a holy God to sinful people, the application of justice is judgment. And nobody wants to talk about that part of God, particularly in our time. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. Just last year, in November of 2015, the Pew Research Center did a series of religious questionnaires in which one of the questions was asking about Americans' belief about a literal heaven and a literal hell. And according to the survey, 74% of Americans said that they believed in a literal heaven, but only 58% said they believed in a literal hell. And that's important to note because it just highlights something that's going on in our culture right now. It's easy for us to believe in the God who would bless us. But it's hard for us to believe in the God who would have judgment as a consequence for our choices and for our sin in this life. But here we see, in, or very early on in the Bible in Genesis, that God judges sin. And when you try to imagine the parts of the story that aren't expressly described, this judgment is really horrifying. It's effect. The water's rising. It says the rain came down and the flood came up. And people must have been terrified running through the streets, looking for a place to find dry land. And before you know it, houses were swept away and other structures were completely covered. And the screams, and the screams, and the screams, and then all of a sudden, it was silent. Eerie. Silence. This judgment was devastating. Listen to some of the ways and some of the force in which God describes it. In Genesis 6, 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Genesis six thirteen, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence, through them, behold, I will destroy them on the earth. Genesis six seventeen. I will bring the flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. 
Everything that is on the earth shall die. Genesis 7, 4, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living creature that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Genesis chapter 7, verses 20 to 24, we see that the pronouncement of judgment is now enacted. And this is what it says. It says that the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's 22 and a half feet above the top of the mountains. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm the earth and all of mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heaven, they were blotted out in the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The first key moment that we see in this story is the divine judgment on sin. The second key moment we see is found in chapter 8, verse 1, and the mood of the story drastically changes. Look at it with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. The tone shifts, the trajectory changes, and it says, in the lowest of low moments, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. That's a fascinating way to express it, isn't it? God remembered Noah. I mean, it's not like he would have forgotten him, is it? Why does he say it that way? God remembered Noah. I mean, how could he possibly forget? After all, Noah was the only unique one on earth. Noah was the one who was described unlike any other living person on the earth. Listen to just a few of the ways he was described in chapter 6, verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 6 verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So it's not like this unique righteous person and his family who were saved basically because of his righteousness have now all of a sudden slipped out of view, is it? So why would, God, so why would the text say that God remembered Noah? I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that it's expressed this way because despite the fact that God would never forget him, we would be very tempted to think that he would forget him. And Noah might even be very tempted to think that he had been forgotten. Think about it. We see the screams had stopped, the rain had now subsided, and all Noah could see out of the windows of the ark was sky and water as far as the eye could see. That's it. If you've ever been out in the middle of the ocean in a little boat or a big boat 
and all you see is sky and water. That is an incredibly isolating feeling. And now he is there for a long period of time, locked in this boat with his kids. I mean, can you be imagine 24 hours a day, 150 days locked in the boat with your kids and the wives of your kids? I mean, I'm a firm believer in the old saying, what do fish, family, and friends all have in common? After three days, they all stink. Speaking of stink, we're talking about 150 days. And what about the animals? and the sounds that they're making, and the smells that are now coming in the midst of this ark, do you think he might have been tempted to say, it's been a long time, God. Everything looks pretty clean to me. Maybe he has forgotten us. But God remembered Noah. He remembered his righteousness. He remembered the walk with him. He remembered the promise that he had made to make a covenant with Noah. And God never, never goes back on his promises. If judgment is the logical outcome of a holy God toward a sinful people, then grace is the illogical but wonderful response of a holy God. And loving God to those people who exercise faith in him. The water subsided. The family and the animals emerged. And we move to the third key moment of this story. And the third key moment is found in chapter 8. And that is God's covenant of life. The first is a divine judgment on sin. The second is that God remembers Noah. The third is this covenant of life. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 20. As soon as they get off the ark, we see an important response by Noah. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Noah's first point of order upon leaving the ship was to express worship and praise and dependence upon this holy, majestic, righteous God who had judgment on the entire world. Smell that God smelled was not the stench of sin. It wasn't the smell of corruption. It was the smell and worship. Then goes on to make with Noah becomes of the creation of the world. Think about creation as the chaos of the and the plants come forth, and then the animals come forth out of the ark, and then the people come forth out of the ark, God immediately gives him a command. Be fruitful and multiply. We've heard that before, right? In many ways, Noah is the new Adam. 
in which God is saying, you're the chosen man. Go forward from here and fill the earth. Death had reigned. Sin had taken over. But the cleansing wrath of God on creation took such an effect that he was starting again. And he made a promise. And the promise was that he would never again flood the earth. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 12. This is how he expresses or summarizes the covenant. He said, this is the sign that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set a bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. Does God forget? No. But we are quite prone to forget. He says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. So even in the midst of death, God offers new life. Even in the midst of death, God offers new life. And in this way, this account of the flood and the covenant that come, comes after is both pointing backwards and it's pointing forwards. It points backwards toward creation, but it points forward toward recreation. It points backward toward life, but it points forward toward new life. It points backward in that it reminds us of sin and rebellion, but it points forward with hope that we would walk with God in righteousness. God gives a covenant of life. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to these four chapters with some of the most terrible Really, when you think about it, some of the most terrible exercising of judgment in all of the Bible, at least to this side of eternity, and a wonderful promise for new life. How do we respond? Well, I think we respond in at least four ways. Number one, God has positioned these chapters in Genesis in such a sequence and so early in the Bible so that we would take sin seriously. <laughs> And so my exhortation to you is to take it seriously. It's powerful. It's powerful, more powerful than we can imagine, and the consequences are certainly more severe than we are able or willing to bear. Number two, I think we respond to this in that we know that God does judge and will judge sin. Where he promised judgment in the past, he delivered. We see it right here. Where he promises judgment in the future, he will deliver. And he says that he will never judge the earth again by way of a flood, but there is another judgment. 
that the Bible talks very clearly about, and that is the judgment for every single person who has to stand before this holy and righteous God in eternity and give an account for their actions. And the unrighteous among us will be judged, and the righteous among us will receive grace. And so that begs the question, how do I get to that point, to the next judgment that's coming, and not be one of the ones who is on the outside of the boat saying, God, I was going to get right with you, but I had it in mind to turn and walk with you, but I got distracted. Or, no, 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 I wasn't expecting it to start raining this soon. I thought I still had another 10 or 15 years. How do we get to the point when we stand on the edge of judgment ourselves and we're not on the outside looking in, but we're on the inside looking out? And that's where Jesus comes in. That's the good news of the gospel that tells us that this perfect son of God can make you righteous in standing before him. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, that's all of our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. When we stand on the precipice of the next judgment, we can have sure confidence through faith in Jesus that my unrighteous standing was already paid for. It was already judged on the cross with him. And instead, the righteous standing that he had was bestowed or imputed upon me. Therefore, when the judgment comes, I can stand secure through faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Can you stand secure? If you have put your faith in Christ, you most certainly can. And if you're waiting, for whatever reason, I want to do some more things first. I don't want to commit to God yet. I'm angry at him for a variety of reasons. I have more time. I have more time than my friends. Know that judgment is coming. And the appropriate response for your salvation from that judgment comes only from one person. Jesus Christ. How else do we respond? I think the third way we respond to this is that we come to know and see and understand and even trust that God in his infinite wisdom holds the balance between grace and judgment. I mean, we live in a time right now where nobody wants to talk about judgment and everybody wants to talk about cheap grace, but God has the balance in mind and the balance is perfect because he is perfect. So trust him as we explore these things together and as you have conversations, spiritual conversations with your friends. Fourthly, how do we respond to this story of the flood and God's judgment and covenant of new life? We respond accordingly by walking in faith. We walk with God expectantly waiting for the return of Jesus. We are ready every day. We don't let another day pass until we're right with him. And when we screw up today, we don't let another day pass until we get on our face before him and say, God, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Help me, save me, please. Because I know judgment is coming. 
We are ready every single day. In closing, I'm reminded of the story of Robbie Robbins, who was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq War. After his 300th mission, he was surprised to be given permission to immediately take his crew and fly his plane home. So they flew across the ocean to Massachusetts, and then they had a long drive to western Pennsylvania. They drove all night long, and when his buddies dropped him off at the driveway, just after sun up the next day, there was a big banner across the garage that said, Welcome home, Dad! How did they know? He said. No one had called. The crew themselves hadn't expected to leave that early, Robbins relate. When I walked into the house, the kids were about half dressed for school and they saw me and they screamed, Daddy! Susan came running down the hall and she looked terrific. Hair fixed, makeup on, crisp yellow dress. How did you know? I asked. I didn't, she answered through tears of joy. But when we heard the war had finished, we knew that you would be coming home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. The Bible says that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. That no one will know the time of his coming except for the Father and when he comes himself. How do you respond to stories about judgment and grace? You are ready every day. May it be so for you. May it be so for me as we trust in this wonderful, just, and incredibly merciful God. Let's pray together. Father, for those here today that question or have questioned the nature of your wrath and judgment against sin, it is my most sincere prayer that today, through your word, you clarify that when you promise to judge, you're going to judge, and that we would have the appropriate amount of fear about that judgment. For those of us, Lord, who wonder what to do but have done nothing to this point, May the call to put their faith in Christ be so real and loud and overwhelming that we can't escape today without saying, Lord, I need you. And for those, Father, who have put their faith in Christ, help us to live ready every day as we too cry out still with confidence in our salvation, but with desperate understanding of our own sin, which is so destructive. Lord, I need you. We sing it to you now, and we pray, Father, that you'd meet us in our place of needs, individually and corporately as a church. Amen.